Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, March 25th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures as you want at any time from anywhere. They have lectures on subjects like history, science, philosophy, or even photography. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. So, have you ever been conned? Not that I know of. I mean, I've definitely gotten those calls where I'm like, this is a scam. This is this is a totally a scam. <laughs> yeah, I've said de- I definitely spotted scams and not gotten conned. Um, but this, you know, past week I was in London, which is why in part we didn't have a show uh, airing last Friday. And um, I got to London and I tried to get on the Heathrow Express from the airport and they declined my credit card. And I was really upset because this credit card is supposed to be like no foreign transaction fees. So I travel with it a lot, but I don't tell the credit card company every time I go on a trip. And so I figured, oh, they just don't know that I'm in London. They think this is like fraudulent, whatever. I gave them a call and it turns out that somebody was buying a ticket uh, to Chile using my card while I was landing in London. Wow! (laughs) And by the way, I had the card in my possession. So, you know, that's always what's what's odd. Is I, and you, you have know, no idea how it happened? Well, I don't know for sure how it happened, although I admittedly am not very good about not purchasing things when I'm using Wi-Fi in public. Okay. Well, we'll have to find out offline what store that was in. <laughs> well, I think it was on the plane, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think it was while I was using the airlines. Not uh, a good ad for that, <laughs> for that airline. <laughs> But anyway, it made me feel as if I'd been conned, although, you know, technically I hadn't really been conned, except maybe you could argue that by believing in Wi-Fi being somewhat secure, (laughs) that's kind of like a con, but it's not really a con. I should have known better for sure. 
But every time Maria Konnikova comes out with a new book, I always am excited to read it. She has her PhD in psychology from Columbia University, but she's best known as being a science writer, especially she writes frequently for The New Yorker and many other publications. And her most recent book is called The Confidence Game. It's all about how we fall for cons every time, and it's fascinating. Really? Every time? Well, okay, not every time, but... Those of us who do... I say that, I said that (laughs) phrase with the utmost gullibility in my voice. (laughs) Well, the thing is, is that that I found really interesting is that people who, who fall for scams, and we all do at some point, I mean, it's not like there's a certain type of person who's particularly gullible. There is a con that is targeted to any given individual is one of the points that she makes is that, you know, we I might not fall for the con uh, of the Craigslist scammer, but maybe I'm the person who falls for the con by the salesperson, you know, in the in the store telling me I look hot in those jeans. Right. <laughs> Still kind of a con, although it's all a arguably con. <laughs> maybe just a white lie. I want to hear about these psychology studies where they're intentionally conning the people in the study. <laughs> Well, uh, there are some of those. But also the thing that I found most interesting is that she writes about people who get conned like majorly and then get conned again with the same scam after they already know that they've been conned once before. And they're not like cognitively impaired. They're just susceptible to whatever it is. It's not even that they're necessarily more susceptible than any one of us, except in this particular domain, right? They just really think that this is a sure thing. And she has a really interesting way of framing why this is the case and how it taps into or how what it tells us about our own psychology. So, um, I was really excited to do this interview, and I'm, I'm really excited to share it with all of you. Well, I hope you learn how to con people. Look out, Indre, doing three-card money on the streets of San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, do you know, what is that, by the way? <laughs> Apparently, it's a con, but yeah. I don't know how it's a con. Yeah, I don't think we need to train you on finding <laughs> out. All right. So that'll be our interview for today. But uh, first, is there anything that caught your eye in the news? Well, I think we should update listeners on a topic we covered recently. We had David Kasserit on not too long ago to talk about the science of medical marijuana. And there was a recent study that came out out of UC Davis about long-term cannabis use. Yep. It's a really interesting study. And, you know, oftentimes I hear people say things like, you know, cannabis is safe. Cannabis is, you know, should, should, you know, obviously shouldn't be criminalized and all this kind of stuff. And one of the arguments they make is because it is less destructive than alcohol dependence. I often hear that is that, you know, alcohol is way worse and alcohol is legal. So why isn't cannabis legal? And we heard that from David to a certain extent, uh, especially when it came to the effects of the smoke, at least. Right. So this study that came out actually asks this question. Is there a difference in terms of the outcomes of cannabis versus alcohol dependency? And there's one big caveat that we have to make straight up, which is that this particular study focused on the financial and socioeconomic uh, costs associated with dependence, not the physical costs. So it's still possible. Uh, and and I don't know that there's the study that's been done directly, and, and maybe there is, and maybe our listeners will point me to it very quickly. But certainly it's possible that alcohol dependence is, you know, wrecks more havoc on your body than cannabis use, I, you know, especially if you don't smoke it, right? If you eat... So when you say it focused on economic issues, though, are we talking about like how much money I'll make over the course of my life, like or just short term impact of like paying out of pocket for marijuana? I don't know what 
So, yeah. So first, let me tell you about the participants. They are participants from the Dunedin Longitudinal Study. So it's uh, a cohort followed from birth to age 38. And there are over a thousand participants in this study. So it's a pretty big study. And so they looked at study members who were regular cannabis users um, or who had persistent and or who had persistent dependence. And it turns out that those individuals uh, were worse off in terms of their socioeconomic mobility. That is, like, could they go from one social class to another? So this is the classic, are you better off than your parents were? That, exactly. Um, whether or not they had more financial difficulties, um, you know, just money problems, workplace problems, um, or relationship conflicts. You know, they're 38. So, you know, it's still, uh, you know, they, they say early midlife. I say youth. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it turns out that, uh, that uh, they did experience more problems in each of these domains. But interestingly, they did not, uh, they did not find a link between cannabis dependence and traffic-related convictions. Oh, which is one of the things that we're naturally concerned about is uh, yep. driving under the influence. Driving under the influence. Although, you know, again, we don't know that they weren't in more traffic related accidents or had, you know, but they weren't convicted with, you know, uh, with more. So traffic I have related. to ask the dumb question. I mean, there's that uh, sort of idea out there that cannabis kind of makes you stupid or less motivated that at least in my conversation with David Kasserat, he, he didn't seem to indicate that was um, an issue. Is that really what's happening here? Well, I think there are two ways of interpreting these data. I think from the perspective of what you're talking about, and, and certainly cognitive psychologists who study cannabis, um, I mean, there's still not a ton of agreement out there, but we do know that it does influence cognition and, um, you know, it, it influences the way your brain functions. It's a mind-altering drug, right? <laughs> so it changes how uh, you think. Now, now, whether that's the cause of you not doing well or having financial problems is still a bit of a leap. And I think people who are advocates for making cannabis legal would argue that, in fact, all of these or a lot of these problems are related to the stigma associated with cannabis dependence. So if yeah. you live in you know, a society in which you're doing something that's stigmatizing, maybe that makes it harder for you to do well in your workplace. I mean, like, it's also natural to say, okay, if they study, if they study people from birth to 38, which goes up to probably, what, last year or two years ago when that study ended, most of this time cannabis has been illegal during this whole time. So mm -hmm. these people that they're studying are at least participating in some sort of illegal activity for an extended period of time. How illegal it is, like, we can talk about. But I'm sure there, the stigma going back at that time versus if you started now would be different. Uh, let's apply a little skepticism here. Mm -hmm. How big of a study are we talking about? This is a pretty big study. A thousand subjects, that's pretty big. A thousand I mean, subjects is a lot. Man, how did they pay for this? Sorry, that's like the grant writer inside of uh, me being so like... So NIDA, National wow. Institute of Drug Abuse, I believe, paid for uh, a lot of this study. And, uh, you know, but let, let me just tell you one more thing. Although cannabis was associated with more financial difficulties uh, than alcohol dependence, the other economic or social problems did not seem to be different from individuals who had alcohol dependence. So if you're an alcoholic, you also have workplace problems, relationship conflicts, socioeconomic mobility issues. And it seems that there isn't a difference between alcohol dependence and cannabis dependence there, which for one thing says that if anything, it's not necessarily safer than alcohol dependence when it comes to these factors, right? So, so the last it's a line, drug. yeah. Well, the last line of the of the um, abstract in the study is literally, 
cannabis dependence is not associated with fewer harmful economic and social problems than alcohol dependence. And that's something we hear a lot about people who, you know, claim that cannabis should be made legal. To be fair, I think I've heard that now in the last, you know, six months to a year, more about alcohol's more harmful health effects, especially when it comes to like liver damage and, and, and whatnot. So maybe that conversation shifting already. Uh, wow, I'm gonna have to go through this with a fine tooth comb because that is a really large study and kind of earth shattering. I heard an interview with the researchers on uh, KQED this week. So apart from the fact they called 38 middle aged and I basically died inside, um, it was uh, like the the callers that called into the show were really upset at the findings of the study, which makes me even more motivated to take a deeper look. Yeah, and I think this I think people are going to have a lot of questions with this study, and I think it's, we're absolutely right to go over it with a fine tooth comb. But I also want to remind listeners that we are all subject to the confirmation bias, and to also try to remain objective and look at what this study actually found, rather than in, you know initially concluding that okay it must be a flawed study. And it's actually free. Uh, you can get the study uh, from the UC Davis website. It's uh, we can we'll actually put a link, put a link on, the on our Tumblr page. Like you can you can download the study yourself and read it yourself. And it's really actually written in a very accessible form. Um, so I encourage people to read it and draw their own conclusions, and then tell us what they think. I'd like to see you segue now to a story to an interview about. Uh, conning people. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't think I'm going to do that segue. (laughs) We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Maria Konnikova. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures as you want at any time from anywhere. They have lectures on subjects like history, science, philosophy, or even photography. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library with courses taught by award-winning professors and experts from places like National Geographic, Smithsonian, the Culinary Institute of America, and our own Indre Viscontis. The Great Courses series are normally priced at two to $300 each, but now you can get unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. Do you love books but find that you never actually have time to read them? Well, audible.com has the perfect solution. Get audiobooks and listen to those books you've been meaning to read while on the go. At the gym, during your commute, audible.com provides over 180,000 titles from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. Their app is free and works on iPhones, iPads, Android, and Windows phones. You can also download and listen on your Kindle Fire and over 500 MP3 players. And unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible, you own your books. So you can access your books anytime and anywhere right from your smartphone. Audible.com also has the Great Listen Guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title anytime, no questions asked. Included in Audible's books are some written by recent guests on Inquiring Minds. Maybe you want to listen to The Geography of Genius by Eric Weiner or Sex and the Sea by Mara Hart. Audible's got them both. And just for our listeners, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. 
Go to audible.com slash minds today and start your free trial. Again, show your support for Inquiring Minds and get a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash minds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Maria Konnikova. Thank you so much for having me. So this book comes during an election year. (laughs) Was that a coincidence? Um, It really was. Um, And obviously, I could not predict um, who the candidates would be. Um, I'm I'm chagrined um, at how applicable my book has become. I honestly wish it weren't so. So let's start at the beginning. What got you interested in the topic of cons? Well, I've been interested in it, I think, for many, many years, as I think many people are, just because con artists are so fascinating on so many levels. I mean, just look at how many movies we have about them and how many books we have about them. Um, Their stories, there's just something very appealing um, about that sort of deception and that ability to kind of get people to do what you want them to do. Um, It's definitely an art. I think there's a reason they're called con artists. Um, But specifically, um, it was a film that I was watching. Um, It was one of David Mamet's uh, films. It was his first film as a director um, called House of Games. I don't know if you've seen it, Um, but it's basically a very elaborate long con. And the main character, and this is what really drew me to the movie, um, is incredibly complex. She's a psychologist. She sees patients. She really knows the ins and outs of human nature. Um, She just wrote a best-selling book. You know, really smart and savvy woman. And she thinks that she's in on this long con. She knows that she's dealing with con artists. And as it turns out, um, she's the target, um, as is so often the case. It does not end well. But um, I, I remember watching that movie and thinking, wow, you know, if if she can be a victim, then anyone can. And that's not normally how we think of victims, right? We normally think of victims as you know, gullible, stupid, greedy, that there's something wrong with them. There's really nothing at all wrong with her. And so I, I thought, how in the world could that happen? Um, and no one had ever really explored it. So that was the next three years of my life. And that's a theme that runs all the way through your book, this notion that we are very good at spotting cons or people who are being scammed, but we're not very good at spotting us, spotting it when, when we ourselves are the target. So what is that all about? Why can we see and interpret a series of events that occurs to someone else as being obviously a scam? But when the same events happen to us, we don't recognize it as such. Yeah, that's a it's a really fascinating dichotomy. And I think we're just we're incapable of being objective when it comes to ourselves. So when, when it's happening to someone else, we see everything. We're not involved. We're actually able to rationally evaluate the evidence, look at what's happening, you know, weigh the facts in a pretty disinterested manner because we don't have any skin in the game. When it's happening to us, Con artists, one of the first things they do is engage our emotion. And once we're emotionally engaged, we stop seeing clearly. So emotion and reason are not direct opposites, but we're pretty close. Um, so when we're, when we're in this kind of emotional state, when we are ourselves part of the story, we stop seeing the signs that we would have seen from the outside. They're not red flags to us. We don't even see them. We think, 
oh, you know, that, that's perfectly understandable. We're incredibly good at motivated reasoning, which is basically seeing what we want to see and not seeing what we don't want to see. Because now we're involved. I mean, it's about us. We're part of the story. We're empathizing with the con artist. We feel like we're really kind of engaged in this narrative. And when that happens, just all logic and all reason goes out the window. And there, there have been a lot of studies that actually show how kind of this process of being transported into a story, which is really what con artists do. They tell you a story. They kind of build a different reality for you. Um, that process of transportation makes us blind. Um, so people in one study who were really transported into a story um, ended up not seeing inconsistencies even when they were asked to look for them. Um, in retrospect, they thought that everything made sense, whereas people who weren't transported, who read kind of similar facts, but in a way that wasn't really engaging, were able to spot all of that quite simply. So, so that kind of brings me to the question of what makes a good story from the perspective of a con artist. And I, I, I like the way that, you know, you, you underscore the fact that there is an artistry to it. And of course, we think of storytelling as being, you know, an important feature of a lot of artistic works. So what makes the story compelling is can can we you know are there some features that bring us into it uh in such a way that you know f make us forget to look for these inconsistencies yeah um so first of all they're obviously they're very emotionally resonant um they are often negative but they can also be positive they just really um know how to hit the right emotional notes from the beginning and they have characters that we can relate to, um, either because we really want to be them or we really don't want to be them. So there, there are people who are really three-dimensional. Everything is very three-dimensional about this. But I think that the most important characteristic when it comes, other than emotion, um, when it comes to the stories that a con artist tells is that they're crafted specifically for us. So the first step of any con is the so-called put-up. That's when the con artist evaluates um, the mark or the victim um, and tries to figure out, okay, what makes you tick? What motivates you? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What is the version of the world that you want to believe is true? You know, what is it that gets you up in the morning? How do you see reality? And then that's the story that they tell. And so it's a different story depending on the person. Um, con artists really do vary the tale um, dramatically depending on who they're dealing with um, because that put up will highlight different different pressure points in, in different people. Um, and so I think that that tailor-made storytelling is what really makes it um, so irresistible to so many people um, ultimately because this is the story that we already want to believe. You know, this is a better version of the world than the world that we live in, or it's a version of the world that will make us into better people. So is this just about the fact that we are so self-centered centered that when someone really, you know, it, it feels as if they're they're they know us in some way, or is it, you know, is it about flattery? Um, is it is it as simple as that? Or is there something else going on? 
Well, that's certainly part of it. I don't think it's just as simple as that, but flattery definitely gets you everywhere. So I, I read a few times that the con artist's Bible um, is Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. By the way, a book that's also come up in the election cycle. Um, and that's a business book. It's not a book about con artistry, but it has a lot of tips on winning friends and influencing people. How do you get people to like you? And yes, we are all supremely egocentric. And we're not just egocentric, we're also incredibly biased about ourselves. So most of us go through life with what's called an optimism bias. And so we see ourselves as much better than we actually are. So everyone is above average at everything, right? That's the Lake Wobegon effect, which is the little mythic town of Lake Wobegon where all the children are um, smarter than everyone else, better athletes than everyone else, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we really do have that sort of approach when it comes to ourselves. I mean, have you ever met anyone who says, actually, you know, I'm a pretty crappy driver, um, someone who drives all the time, of course, because this has to be something important to you. And I'm not very nice and I'm kind of abrasive. Um, and, you know, I'm probably just going to be kind of average in this class because um, I'm an average student and I'm not particularly smart. I mean, most people don't say that. Um, we really have this rosy conception of ourselves that we're better at good things and worse at bad things. Um, and the only people who don't have that are people who are clinically depressed. So that goes to show just how beneficial that optimism bias actually is. It makes us hopeful. It gives us kind of a sense that tomorrow is going to be better. That's that momentum that we need to get out of bed in the morning. Otherwise, what's the point? Which is obviously exactly what happens with people who are clinically depressed. And con artists definitely, they tap into that because the version of the world they sell us isn't reality, but it's the one that's real in our minds. It is that slightly rosier, more optimistic version. Um, you know, they, they tell us that we are, that we are better. They tell us that we are, um, that we are more worthy. They feed into that hope. I think ultimately, um, you know, what all of them are selling, it doesn't matter if it's money. Um, it doesn't matter what it's about. It's all about hope at a very fundamental level, at least for the marks, for the people um, who become the targets of these schemes. So do you think that a person who is clinically depressed is a harder mark? because they have a more realistic view of themselves yeah. in the world? You know, that's actually, it's a really good question. And um, I wasn't able to find any data on it um, because uh, there aren't very many studies of clinically depressed individuals who, who become victims of con artists. We do know that depression actually makes you a better target, but that's not clinical depression. That's someone who's going through kind of a traumatic experience, um, you know, death or divorce or a loss of a job that kind of thing, it, it makes you very emotionally vulnerable. And then you become more vulnerable to con artists because you want stability and you want certainty. You want someone to reassure you. But that's very different from clinical depression. Clinical depression is not a response to one particular traumatic event. It's a chronic state of being. Um, and so I would not be surprised if the clinically depressed were less susceptible. Um, I would also bet that they're still susceptible, just probably to a different type of con, one that feeds into that realism, you know, one that says, you know, we know that the world sucks, that everything sucks. Um, so we're not going to try to sell you anything. And then you take it from there. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so at the very beginning of your book, you describe the con artist in a way that I had never really considered him or her to be, which is not, you know, I sort of think of them as sociopaths, people who are cold and unemotional and, un- uh, you know, have no empathy and so forth. But but in fact, you you suggest that the opposite must be true, because the first thing that they need to do is establish trust. So tell me a little bit about that. What is this, you know, how can a person who's a con artist who is so able, uh, apparently, to navigate social relationships, you know, still choose to swindle people and, you know, do things that just aren't moral? Well, I think that um, we actually have an incorrect perception of what empathy means in society. So when you think empathy, you probably think, you know, warm and kind and someone who really understands other people. But empathy is actually comprised of two distinct parts. There is that emotional empathy. There's also a very cold and cognitive empathy, which is a logical understanding of where someone's coming from, but without that emotional um, rapport. And that can be learned that can be faked. And in fact, that can be honed in the absence of emotion because emotion often gets in the way of complete empathy because our own emotions um, cloud our judgment and we're not actually able to see things from other people's points of view. So people who are psychopaths often can be incredibly cognitively empathetic, that cold rational empathy, because they can actually just analyze without any emotion the situation. They can listen to you and they can understand exactly where you're coming from and then they can fake the emotion. So I think that that's what con artists are so incredibly good at. So they're not all psychopaths. Some of them are um, and so they don't have that emotional experience to begin with. But some of them aren't, but they have, they make that division very clear. They really separate their emotions from their kind of cold, rational, okay, I'm understanding you, not because I care about you. I mean, think of what I'm calling you. I'm calling you a mark. I'm not calling you a human. I'm calling you a walking target. Um, that I think that word just says so much about that mindset. So I'm very able to empathize in the sense of seeing exactly what you want, understanding you, building trust, smiling and making myself into the type of person that you like, because I have calculated exactly who that type of person is. And my emotion is completely divorced. It's completely separate. So that side of empathy isn't engaged at all. And I write about one con artist um, very briefly who failed that test. And he probably is not no longer working as a con artist because he's clearly not very good at it. So he was he was um, doing this very common IRS scam where you call and you say, oh, you owe taxes. You know, if you don't pay this amount of money now, you're going to be arrested and all this bad stuff is going to happen. So he was doing this um, on the phone with a young woman who then started crying and saying, oh my God, I'm nine months pregnant. I'm about to give birth. I can't afford this. What's going to happen? I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose everything. And she just became hysterical. Um, And he said, lady, lady, don't worry about it. It's a scam. Um, And so obviously, you know, he felt empathy for her on a real emotional level. um, And that killed him. Um, He wasn't able to pull off the scam. That's kind of an amazing story. And I guess there are cons who aren't very good at it, (laughs) just like there are, you know, in any other field. Um, 
But why aren't we very good at detecting this kind of false emotional expressiveness? I mean, you know, people talk about cortical smiles, the fact that, you know, the, the, si- the, the size of your eyes don't light up in a, in a genuine smile the way they do, you know, and, and so you, we, can, we can see cortical smiles immediately um, when, when we look at photos of people who, you know, whatever, took a selfie or whatever. Um, and, and so it seems as if we're actually pretty good at detecting authenticity in emotion. But is that just not true? Or, you know, is, is that another Wobegon uh, exaggeration? Yeah, it's actually not true. We're really bad um, at, we're very good at reading what different emotions are when you kind of give us a set of photographs where we can, we can pretty universally, and I say universally because a lot of this work that was done by Paul Ekman on emotion recognition was done um, cross-culturally in a lot of different societies. So we're pretty good at saying, oh, you know, she's happy, this is anger. There are lots of universal expressions of emotion. So we're good at that. But when it comes to authenticity in real life, we're actually really, really bad at it. Um, We are the opposite of good lie detectors. So mostly our um, ability to detect truth from from a lie or authenticity from inauthenticity is a coin toss. It's 50-50, even though we think that we are very good at it. And in some sort of circumscribed situation where, you know, you're shown photographs of two different people and you say, okay, these are different, um, which one is which, then we can do it. But if you think about real life, it's never like that. It's not a laboratory. And con artists aren't people who are posing for a photograph as a liar or even posing for a video as a liar. These are people for whom lying is central to their identity. Lying is what they do. It's who they are. I mean, they lie every single moment of every single day for the most part. You know, they live their lie. And so to them, the lie isn't a lie. There's no you know, there's no dissonance there. Um, there's no tension. And so to them, the lie is second nature. And so we can't see that. And as I found out, I was actually really surprised by this. It's really evolutionarily advantageous to be trusting and to be bad at spotting lie detection. So individuals who are more trusting, who have higher levels of what's called generalized trust, um, end up doing better, um, emotionally. Um, they end up doing better health-wise. They end up being more intelligent. And obviously, this is all correlational. We don't know what the causation is. Um, and socially, that's also true, that societies with higher levels of trust do better economically. They have better social institutions. They're more successful. Um, and it actually makes sense if you stop and think about it, because in order to progress be it as an individual or as a society, we have to forge social connections and we have to trust. We have to actually get over that mistrust of one another so that we can create something bigger than ourselves. So that makes sense. And then the other part of it that we're bad at spotting lies also makes sense because it's very protective to the ego. I mean, you don't actually want to know when someone is lying to you, because we lie all the time in small ways. You don't want to know that someone thinks that you look actually really crappy today rather than, oh, you look really nice. You know, did you do something different to your hair? You don't want to spot that deception. Um, There are just some fascinating studies. One was done of marriage, um, and it ended up that the couples that were more successful and that were happier were worse at reading cues of deception in one another. 
um, which made me laugh. <laughs> um, but it, it actually makes a lot of sense. You know, they, they bought each other's lies and that made them have a happy marriage. So, I mean, this is just so counterintuitive, this idea that the more trusting you are, especially when it comes to intelligence, you know, that there is this correlation. I mean, it seems that it should be exactly the opposite. When I think about, you know, people who are hyper rational, who are very logical, who, you know, don't take anything at face value, who want to see the evidence before they make any kind of conclusion, um, that they represent kind of the seat of higher intelligence. But, you know, you're suggesting that that's, in fact, not the case. Yeah. Um, and like I said, it was a surprise to me as well um, that that this was the case. I was I was of the exact same mindset as you. I thought that, oh, of course, you know, intellect should go with um, more skepticism. But, you know, if it is the case that it's more evolutionarily beneficial to be trusting, well, then then the fact that the two go hand in hand aren't necessarily so crazy. Um, and by the two, I mean intelligence and being trusting. And if you think about the only data that we have that's really consistent over time um, about what makes people live longer and have happier and more fulfilled lives, it's all about social connections. I mean, the one thing that we find over and over and over is that the biggest buffer against disease, against sadness, against you know, passage of time, against mental decline even, is social connections and love and emotion. And that's all founded on trust. So I think it plays an incredibly powerful role in our lives and one that we don't often acknowledge. I think a lot of the times that people say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm so skeptical, I don't trust anyone, blah, blah, blah. They do have people that they really trust. Um, and it's not like they're skeptical of humanity. Some people are. There are also people who are on the one hand skeptical, but on the other hand can be incredibly trusting in certain situations. Well, and you're hitting upon one point that I was going to bring up, which is this notion that people who are highly skeptical often, you know, look at the scientific method and, you know, data as being, you know, essentially the final answer. And in some ways, you know, they might be more willing to, you know, trust a scientist or trust the data, um, even though, you know, oftentimes when we're looking at studies of human, of human, you know, the human experience, um, the data are muddy, <laughs> the, the methods are difficult. Um, and so, you know, when when someone finds a, a compelling study that, you know, get, you know, yeah, has some result, uh, I find that people who are most skeptical tend to also be most trusting uh, of those data. Yes, especially when those data are something that they want to believe. So we have confirmation bias there as well. It permeates academia. So I've written before about kind of this liberal bias in academia, which actually translates to research. There have been really compelling studies done on the exact same paper. I mean, identical, um, word for word, except for the conclusion. It's swapped in the two papers. In, in one, it's a liberal conclusion. Um, I don't actually remember what this particular study was about, but let's say, um, I don't know, that there are no gender differences in anything. Um, and the other one has a more conservative conclusion that actually, you know, there are gender differences in this particular domain. We don't know what they mean, but whatever. Um, you know, something that's very circumspect. It was not at all. And it's not, it was definitely not about gender differences. It was something much more nuanced than that. Um, 
And the paper got accepted when it had the liberal conclusion and rejected, and people found all these methodological flaws with it um, when it had conservative conclusions. And once again, they were identical. Um, so we are incredibly good at saying, oh, yep, this is definitive when we want to believe it, when it actually goes along with our mindset, and really bad when it doesn't. Um, and I think people have, who are very skeptical have this false sense of confidence because you're absolutely right. You know, the world is incredibly messy. It's not clear cut. Sometimes results, especially in psychology, are really, really messy because humans are messy. And sometimes they're not what we want to believe is true at all. You know, the world does not care that it's politically incorrect. It's politically, you know, it's politically incorrect because it doesn't actually you know, it has, it's absolutely agnostic about our beliefs. It's just the way that it is. And so if it doesn't mesh with how we think the world should go, um, well, then we're, we're, we end up, you know, getting it wrong um, because we'll ignore that evidence. And I think that um, it's an incredibly important point. And by the way, it's one that con artists understand very well because they always sell us, as I already said, the world that we want to be true. They get rid of the messiness. They make it very easy. They make it from shades of gray into black and white. You know, they give us that certainty. That's why we trust them. We love that. I mean, we, that's what we want the world to be like. So I, I think I need to put my head on my desk for a minute <laughs> before we go on. Uh, okay, I'm ready. All right. So, so, so we've got the mark, which is an important uh, first step in terms of a, a con artist's strategy. Then you've got the storytelling of the compelling emotional thing. And, and we've got this sense of building a world or presenting a world or a story that someone who's the mark wants to believe in. How does the con then get the person to do what they want to do? What's sort of, what's sort of the next major thing that they've figured out how to do? Well, this is actually quite brilliant because um, one of the features that con artists um, possess is something called Machiavellianism. And that comes from Machiavelli's ideal prince. Um, and what the ideal prince does is manipulate people so that they don't realize they're being manipulated. We hate when we're manipulated. You know, nothing makes you balk and kind of lose trust and go away more quickly than thinking that someone's trying to kind of get you to do something. You know, when a car salesman's too pushy, you end up leaving without a car. You say, oh, he was so sleazy. He just didn't get me at all. But when that same car salesman um, is Machiavellian, um, when he is able to plant ideas in your mind so that you think it's coming from you, so that you don't actually think that anyone is asking you to do anything. It's of your own volition. Then all of a sudden you're buying the most expensive car on the lot because you think that that's what you actually want and that you deserve it, um, even though you know you would have walked away from a cheaper car in the hands of a, of a sleazier, uh, for lack of a better word. Salesmen, well, sleazy and salesmen kind of go together, I feel like, in the English language. Um, and so what good con artists do is they plant kind of these seeds, these ideas in our mind, often through their stories. So when we were talking about storytelling and how they engage emotion and how they make us um, impervious to incorrect information, well, we also absorb a lot of facts and a lot of suggestions and a lot of things under the radar because we don't realize that stories can also be tool tools of manipulation. And so 
these ideas have been planted in our minds. And so then we think that it's coming from us and not from someone else. So the, the origin of the word confidence man is someone who doesn't ask you for anything. It's someone to whom you willingly give your confidence. The original confidence man um, was this guy in the 1800s in New York City. And by original confidence man, I don't mean the first confidence man. I mean the first person called the com- a confidence man. He would walk along the streets of Manhattan and he would ask people, hey, excuse me, do you have confidence in me? Do you trust me um, to give me your watch until tomorrow? And they gave him their watch um, of their own free will. He didn't rob anyone because they just thought, oh, well, you know, what a fanciful request. You know, am I the type of person who believes in humanity? Well, of course I have confidence in you. I'm a gentleman. You're a gentleman. It's all about gentlemen's agreements. Um, and he ended up with lots and lots of watches by the time that he got caught. Um, and so that is the confidence artist's art. That's, the, that's their crucial skill, that you never feel manipulated. You always think that a lot of these notions, a lot of these schemes are coming from you. I mean, think of Bernie Madoff's victims. He did not ask anyone for money. People begged him to take their money because they thought that he was just the end all and be all of investing and he would turn them down. People had to wait for years to be able to give their money to to Madoff. Oh, I almost said Sanders. That was terrible. <laughs> D- different Bernie. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, to, to give their money to Madoff because they, um, you know, they just were so thrilled. They said, oh, please take it. Take more. Take more. And he had planted kind of that idea that he's so brilliant in their minds um, over time. And you're actually touching upon a, a, something that people you know, say as a part of networking that, you know, instead of asking someone for something that you need, you know, the first thing that you do is you offer something that you think they want, um, you know, whether it's your time or advice or, you know, a volunteer, you know, that that's, that's the first step in developing a relationship, you know, so in some ways, like, are we all just conning each other? And that this seems to be you know, something that allows us to function as a society? Um, should should we be more overt about, um, you know, what it is that we want from relationships? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you, <laughs> um, we do all perpetrate minor cons on a daily level. I wouldn't call them cons in the sense of the con artist, because then the term becomes completely inconsequential, then there's really just no, no difference between an everyday person and a con artist. And so to me, kind of our everyday deceptions, they're not cons, they're not always even white lies. They're just kind of, they're the ways that we operate in the world. And it's kind of, you know, it's the difference between going back to politics, between your general politician um, and someone who's actually a con artist politician. And that's a difference of intention. So are you, is your intent malicious? And is this a means to a personal end that really has nothing to do with what you're, what you're actually doing? It has to do with power. It has to do with control. Um, you know, it has to do with all sorts of things that you're trying to get for yourself. Or are you actually like genuinely trying to, you know, trying to take, make the best of a situation? Are you really trying to, yeah, you're selling something, but you're selling a version of the world that you actually believe in. Um, you 
don't have a malicious, nefarious intent. You're actually thinking that you're um, not hurting anyone and that you're potentially even making the world a better place. Um, and so a lot of politicians end up falling under that sort of rubric, um, whereas some end up falling under the con artist rubric, where for them politics is just a means to an end. Um, and it really is a big con. Um, and politics, I, I purposefully chose something that's kind of at one far end of the continuum, and that's a, an end that's very, very close to con artists. I mean, that line starts getting very gray. But I think in general, yes, we use tools of persuasion. Sure, we sometimes consciously, sometimes not um, use some of the same tools that con artists use in our daily lives, but not for the same, you know, we're not doing it to take advantage of people um, in the same way that con artists are. Um, we're, we're doing it for much more benign ends. And yes, we benefit from that. Um, but I don't think that makes us con artists. The exact same tools can be used in positive and negative contexts. So we've gotten to the point where we kind of maybe understand why, you know, how we get conned. But the, the, the last step, of course, is that a lot of people don't get out. <laughs> they, give, they, you know, they give more money. Um, so what is that all about? Well, I think ultimately um, the single best con artist is ourselves. So once we're in a con, we've already talked about the fact that we, you know, we stop seeing red flags, we stop being reasonable, we stop being rational. Um, but what also happens is we really don't want to believe um, that we're being conned. We want more than anything to kind of maintain that picture of ourselves as very smart and savvy and good judges of characters in our own minds. And so we end up justifying everything and explaining away all the elements of the con so that oftentimes, even when the con is exposed, we refuse to believe that it was a con. So I write about some victims, and this is totally crazy, who after their con artist is exposed and is in the courtroom standing trial and they have evidence that this was a con in front of them, they insist that no, this is all a big conspiracy. Um, this was not a con. Um, this person is being railroaded and this is, a, you know, this is just a show trial. And there are people who end up paying for the defense funds of the con artists who already fooled them, which to me is just so crazy. And yet it's not a one-time occurrence. It happens over and over and over. So oftentimes people fall for the exact same con multiple times because rather than learning from experience, they've done such a good job rationalizing away all the inconsistencies that they say, oh, it was just bad luck. You know, this went wrong, that went wrong. And so why not do it again? You know, maybe my luck will change. I'm still kind of amazed by by that. But, you know, it kind of brings me to where I think probably we'll, we'll end the conversation. And towards the end of the book, you actually talk about um, what are the reasons why we seem to get sucked in uh, and that, you know, we have all of this ego preservation and everything um, and that there is one very human thing that we do that seems to highlight this. And, and that is gossip. So what do we know, especially if I was hoping that maybe you talk about some of the Robin Dunbar work about, you know, our conversations and just how, you know, gossip is something that we all do 
all the time. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so Robin Dunbar um, did a lot of really important work on social connections. And he started out studying primates um, and grooming behavior in primates. You know, why do primates spend so much time grooming one another um, and literally nitpicking? And um, what he found out was that this was a way to foster social connection, that it actually shows you that, you know, you are someone who is invested in me because you're spending the time grooming me. And there's a limit to how big primate groups can be because there are limits to how much time you have in the day to build these connections. And those connections are really important because they determine your status in kind of a troop of, of, um, of primates, whatever the primate happens to be. Say you're a chimpanzee or whatever you are. Um, and so you develop reputations like, oh, this is someone who actually grooms people. Um, and so this is someone we'll protect. This is someone who cares about our community. Oh, this is someone who doesn't reciprocate this. You don't, you don't groom people. Um, you don't do this. We're going to kick you out or we're going to you know, demote you to the lowest rung. So you're always the last to get food and whatever it is. So then he actually saw that there was a relationship between the size of the brain, um, the number of social connections that um, that primates had and the time they spent grooming. So he came up with this mathematical formula. He applied it to humans and he thought, wait a minute, you know, by, by this particular metric, we should be spending basically all of our waking hours grooming and we don't. And yet we are able to have kind of a bigger number of connections. So why is that? And he realized that we groom in different ways. We have a way of broadcasting our reputation to multiple people without actually spending time grooming. And that's through gossip. Gossip isn't an inherently bad word. It's become negatively tinged in modern society. But all it's about is sharing information about other people. Um, and so, you know, you, now I can groom my, my monkey, um, and then another monkey can say, Hey, did you see Maria is so good at grooming? You know, she, she's really trustworthy. And so someone else says, Oh, I heard that Maria is very trustworthy. You know, she's a great groomer. Um, and so my reputation spreads. I have a good reputation. Now imagine the opposite that, you know, someone grooms me. And then rather than reciprocate, I say, thank you and walk away. Um, and then someone says, huh, you know, that Maria girl, she, she's not very nice. Someone else says, oh, someone else said Maria's not very nice. And the gossip spreads, your reputation spreads. And so it's a really important way of managing, um, social impressions and of managing social networks and of creating lasting friendship groups. I mean, reputation stands in as a proxy for so many things because, you know, it's something that really, travels with you throughout your life. I mean, that's why it's called reputation. And it's something that people can use as a shortcut um, for for a lot of different things so that you don't have to reestablish yourself every single time. And it can be incredibly helpful. By the way, the fact that it's so popular and so incredibly powerful um, is one of the reasons we should be really, really scared of the internet and of social media because people's reputation can be ruined in a second. Um, and then it lives on um, in the ether, kind of on the internet and internet searches. Um, and it really colors our perception of someone we might not even know. And it might not even be true. But that's the internet's a very powerful um, reputation and uh, reputation magnifier that we should be really wary of. Yeah, I think you've essentially just explained the internet from Craigslist <laughs> to Facebook <laughs> and everywhere in between. 
<laughs> Even the comment thread on YouTube. <laughs> So I want to remind our listeners that your book, The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time, is available from booksellers everywhere. Maria Konakova, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute pleasure. So the item that really stuck with me was that question of, are we always conning each other in some way, shape or form? We're always conning each other in some way, shape. Yeah, I mean, that's why I kind of wanted to bring up this whole gossip idea towards the end, because she does bring it back um, at the end of the book about, about you know, she, she talks about the social brain hypothesis, which is, you know, Robin Dunbar's idea that a lot of the selection pressures that, you know, shaped essentially our brains during our evolutionary history involve the fact that we need to interact with each other socially. Um, and that, in fact, that we do have this kind of grooming, this kind of, you know, hierarchical interactiveness that we do all the time. And part of that, of course, is conventional convincing people that you're more important than you actually are, <laughs> that you're, you know, more trustworthy, that you're, you know, a better friend to have. Um, and, you know, I think we all do this to a certain extent. And then we gossip about uh, uh, each other. Uh, and and I'm, I'm, you know, hoping that we're getting to a point in our uh, evolutionary, you know, present state where the gossiping doesn't need to be malicious. But, you know, I think there's just still a lot of evidence. From How to network better, according to con artists. Uh, the uh, the other thing that really stuck with me was that short anecdote about the the con artist that um, felt empathy for the the subject when he found out, you know, she was nine months pregnant and like, and that this is going to go off the rails that we that sort of image that Hollywood's portrayed to us of like the cold blooded con artist is not entirely true. Well, I mean, it's certainly, you know, as she mentions, he's probably a bad con <laughs> artist. We're not all great at our jobs. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I think that was another thing that sort of permeated through her book is this notion that in fact, you know, empathy comes in two forms. There's that empathy that, you know, you need in order to read what another person is thinking and feeling. Uh, and that's maybe different from your sense of behaving morally, which is like a kind of, you know, slightly different, different thing. Although a lot of times we, we equate the two too. Um, but also this notion that, you know, the first thing that a con man or a con woman has to do is gain your trust. And how do they do that? How do you gain someone's trust? Like you often be make yourself seem vulnerable. So that's like a very different view. I think that's why people get conned because someone comes up to them and seems very vulnerable and, you know, seems as though they need a favor and they, you know, you just need to give them a favor. And, you know, it turns out that they're conning you. So after reading the book, are you more guarded? <laughs> um definitely not going to use wi-fi to make purchases <laughs> on airplanes in the near future i think on that good advice we, we should call it a show so that's it for another episode i want to thank you for joining us for this installment of inquiring minds and we'd also like to thank our supporters on our patreon campaign especially herring chang nick cadillac sean johnson brendan ryan and anonymous you can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com where we have show notes and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your best con or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by always confident Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Geesh. See you next week. And once again, this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. 
The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures as you want at any time from anywhere. They have lectures on subjects like history, science, philosophy, or even photography. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a chance to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. Sign up now for your one-month trial. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.